Hi, this is Dr. Long. I'm the director of the MindFit Clinic and the Office of Accessibility Services at West Virginia University. You're listening to the NeuroNoodle Network podcast. Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssens, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend, Jay Gunkelman. My name is Pete. Our goal is to promote options for better mental health. Specifically, we focus on the objective data you receive from a brain map and the positive results of training with neurofeedback. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to our YouTube channel, be a Patreon supporter of our show, get early content, behind-the-scenes action, as well as partake in our members-only NeuroNoodle Network meeting. They can't hear us, we can't help them. If you're not a subscriber, visit NeuroNoodle.com to sign up for our newsletter. Jay, how'd the remembrance go uh, last week? Well, Roth, I know. It, it was a wonderful experience to have to go through uh, for an awful reason, you know, having lost a whole bunch of very key people. It's like the bottom being torn out of a pyramid. You know, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine how the field stands when the foundation's been pulled away. Foundational people for heart rate variability, for EMG, for for eg for for teaching uh, a major manufacturer you know and then some uh, some unexpected young you know uh, joe castellano was uh, 49 and that was not expected joe camilla was uh, mid 90s he, he had his birthday i think yesterday if he would have still been here so yeah. but um the what was wonderful about it is it was you know a zoom meeting and you could look on screen and see people that you've known for well people that i've known for 48 years some very old time folks and all the way through to folks i've met that are younger and some students who popped in it was like a family gathering and that was the wonderful part about it now it took me a day and a half to dry out my eye patch. So, you know, it, yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was a tearjerker as well, you know, but um, it, it isn't every day you get to see Barry Sturman essentially face to face and have a nice chat with him. You know, he said he was in the fourth quarter of his, you know, his life. And I said, well, Barry, there's always overtime. You know, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> and he laughed and I said, well, it's sudden death over time, you know, so, uh, <laughs> but, you know, we, we had a chance as a, a family to mourn the losses and it was full of laughter as well as tears. And um, it, it was a, it was a good event and it was open to anybody and everybody, regardless of affiliation within the field. So there were, uh, there were, you know, folks that weren't necessarily AAPB you know, aficionados that, that popped in you know, to say goodbye to all these key people. Well, here, here we are, Jay, you're, you're a tough son of a gun, man. We'll, we'll, we'll take another <laughs> show with you, man. <laughs> I've been warning him for a decade or more, actually, that, that my time is up. I don't know when it's going to happen, but uh, I, I'm way past their estimate. No, they, they gave me half a chance of 10 years, 28 years ago. So we're all on a one day contract, right? Yeah. If, yeah. if that today we have on the show dan long 
Dr. Dan Long. That's the only time I'll say the doctor, Dan. He has MindFit Clinic. He's a director, uh, testing and service coordinator. Dan, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to meet you all. Nice to be here. Yeah. Now, help me get this all right. You're out in West Virginia, right? Tell, mm-hmm. tell me about MindFit, the clinic, what you guys do out there in your background. Sure. MindFit started in 2009. Essentially, the program is, um, the, the mission of our program is to help students overcome obstacles to, academic, to, to achievement, essentially. We offer a range of services to do that. Um, we offer academic enhancement services, cognitive enhancement services, and we do some assessment as well. The cognitive enhancement services is how we got, kind of how we got our start. Um, I could share a little more on that in a moment. And so we do things like cognitive training and neurofeedback for uh, students of West Virginia University who are struggling with attention or other cognitive issues. Um, Pretty early on, we also started getting approached by high-performance athletes. Uh, it started when we had a, um, a WD rifle team is a pretty big deal here in, in our state. And uh, we had a rifle team member approach us uh, some years ago and say, hey, listen, there was this guy last year from India who won the gold and he was doing uh, neurofeedback. I hear you do neurofeedback. Um, what do you got? And so uh, we worked with WD rifle through uh, four consecutive NCAA championships, uh, Olympic uh, medals, and then uh, even have a chance to serve as a uh, consultant to uh, to Nike. So it's not our bread and butter, but it's uh, something that, that we do. The academic unit, um, you could kind of think of it in terms of uh, sort of like tutoring in a way, but it's a little more enhanced. Uh, the approach that we use is one geared toward helping students become more autonomous learners, helping to build their capacity through learning new skills, um, broadening their metacognitive skills, if you will. A lot of that's informed by um, some cognitive science. And then we do some psychoed testing as well, psychoeducational testing. We started back in 2009. Uh, Originally, we started because our psychiatric colleagues were um, getting flooded with students requesting uh, stimulant medication evaluations. And they were savvy enough to realize that self-report alone was probably not uh, a good way to make those decisions. And uh, at the time, I was a senior staff psychologist with the counseling center, as well as uh, uh, the coordinator of testing services on campus. So we ambitiously crafted a screening protocol that did a few things. It provided some quantitative data to help inform uh, our, those psychiatrists' decision-making. It also gave us the chance to start meeting with students to help better their understanding and change their awareness of what ADHD is. Uh, as well as the myriad other factors that could be affecting their performance other than purely cognitive ones, things like, I don't know, sleep, substance use, that kind of stuff. And we even published a study a few years ago. We developed like a multi-tiered validity approach to understanding whether students who are presenting to our clinic uh, are earnest in their presentation, whether they're putting optimal effort forward in the testing testing that they, they undergo. We published something in adult applied neuropsychology a few years ago on that. So we're meeting with these students doing testing and then realizing that we didn't really have much in the way of referrals. You know, it was, I guess, go see a psychiatrist, maybe work with a therapist here on behavioral management kind of stuff. And that didn't sit well with me. I tend to be a person who believes that we already have within ourselves a lot of the resources we need to 
improve and enhance how we're doing. So that's when I started my uh, my journey into neurofeedback and cognitive training. And I would say cognitive training is a bit more my area of expertise. Um, we developed our own cognitive training method here. Um, some 2019 data with the approach that we have is shown to be uh, uh, pretty effective. About 10 weeks, the cohort that we had, a small N, about 46 or so, but they only received um, cognitive training. Uh, attention composites on the CPT improved by about two standard deviations on average. 70% of them no longer look quantitatively impaired at the end of that 10-week that, uh, period. The other ones are trending. Struggled to find a neurofeedback intervention that was working well with our population. Um, tried a variety of things. Got consultation from some of the best, but it's a very interesting uh, group or population that we work with. Uh, again, many of whom are presenting ostensibly with attention issues, but also have a history of traumatic brain injury, cognitive disorders, and the like. They want to see results right away. They don't necessarily have the patience to be told 20, 30, 40 sessions, you might see a change. Our cognitive training protocol was producing changes fairly rapidly, very tangibly for them. So that was exciting to them. And then with the neurofeedback, some of the interventions we were using were producing these miraculous kinds of outcomes, but not consistently for all. Um, and so it wasn't until recent years that um, we started using a few approaches, including ISF, that was uh, really helpful for, for our population. And uh, now where we are today is we're starting to combine approaches for the first time. We're doing task-based neurofeedback, which is uh, neurofeedback that's administered under task-positive conditions meant to enhance both phasic and tonic aspects of attentional functioning. So it's neurofeedback under cognitive load. That has been my passion now for the past couple of years. Can I ask a question on behalf of our parents? Sure. And then uh, Dr. Laura, Dr. Skip, and Jay can ask the uh, clinician and technician questions. If a kid in college is going to study, they're going to try to get Adderall or some type of drug to give them uh, an edge to pay attention. I haven't been into college in a long time, and it's just it's a coincidence on our own neuro noodle side. I have a, an ad going out with a bunch of pills of Adderall and saying, Hey, you know, instead of taking these come through what, how does it work at the school? The kids come in, they got to get tested to see if they can get a prescription. What, what's the process. And then if the docs want to pitch in later to show what they can find on the QEEG and what the neurofeedback protocol is uh, I'll hang up and listen for my answer. Thank you. As far as uh, what evaluations require, that varies uh, markedly. Uh, you know, we're talking university and counseling centers and the like, uh, or psychiatric yeah. services. Um, so at some institutions, you might go in just like you would to a medical provider, and based on self-report, that physician's going to prescribe you, um, you know, stimulant salts or, or whatever. Um, in other places, they're, they uh, their, their standard perhaps is a little different. They may have, um, you know, some hoops you have to jump through, an assessment protocol you have to undergo, uh, for, and that ranges. Some require really comprehensive psychoeducational testing, you know, six hours plus of testing, hopefully broken up across multiple days, but a lot of times it's, I've, I've seen it in one day, which is awful. It's a bad way to get an accurate depiction of a person's skills and abilities. And then, you know, they'll, they'll take that data and they may consult with their psychiatrist on staff and, you know, there'll be some discussion about that. In other places, they may have a screening uh, protocol, some nothing at all. So I think it really varies from 
Interesting, I've been getting more questions. I, I'm a part of a, a national listserv of college counseling center folks who conduct, who administer psychoed testing. And in that listserv, there's been discussion over the past year plus about, hey, is there something that we can do in the way of a screening that's not quite a very comprehensive psychoed battery, but still gives us some objective data to help inform decision making? You know, there are strengths and, and uh, weaknesses of just about every approach, right? But I think some data is probably better than no data. Dan, I had a couple questions. And one is about something you mentioned. I wonder if you could just highlight it again so folks might be able to access it, maybe even uh, you can throw it in the notes for us. You mentioned a validity approach multi-tiered that was published. I know lower mm-hmm. 48 for sure. Up here, it, it's not as much emphasis, meaning validity for, for tests, not that we don't care up here. It just seems a bigger focus uh, down in lower 48 to ensure that folks are presenting authentically. And I'll just say it that way. So is, is there, can you, can you just repeat your uh, a validity paper? Yeah, sure. So, well, the first thing, I'll, let me preface this by saying, the first thing I teach our doctoral students when they train with us, uh, I quiz them, what's the first thing that a malingering test cannot tell you? It cannot tell you if a person's malingering. That's the trick. Um, so I, like, I appreciate your, uh, the verbiage you use there, which is, you know, are they putting forth optimal effort? And that's, we're, we're hoping to, to get a glimpse of that. And there's no single test that does that, just like everything in science. You hope it's subjected to a multi-trait, multi-method kind of approach. The, the study that we published on was using a performance validity measure. Uh, the one that, that we use in the publication is something called the NVMSVT. It's the Non-Verbal Medical Symptom Validity Test. It's okay. Paul Green, who's a neuropsychologist in Canada, designed it. He has tried to do his best to make it pretty bulletproof. There's some really compelling data. So it's a test that is ostensibly a memory test that really requires very little memory. It's actually an effort test. Uh, Essentially, folks with the most severe forms of memory impairment, fetal, fetal alcohol syndrome, folks who have intellectual disabilities, folks with dementia, they all pass this thing with flying colors. The only area that they struggle in is this uh, one particular condition, which is not surprisingly the free recall condition, but they still, generally speaking, are able to pass this thing. So if you are um, a healthy young man or young woman in ages 18, 19, 20, and you're coming in and you're failing this thing, but you're not walking into walls, we have reason to be uh, concerned about what it is you were doing during that administration. Now, that's uh, so. What we did is we we administered that, and we also administered a uh, a pretty popular CPT, continuous performance test, computerized measure of attention and response control. We used the IVA. We gave this group of individuals the IVA to look at their attention, and then we gave them this NVMSVT, and we saw who passed the performance validity test and who failed. And then we asked the question: How do their scores on the CPT differ? And could we derive some empirically uh, some empirical cutoffs for uh, whether you appear to be someone who may have an attentional impairment and is trying well? Um, what would be very rare and unusual is you're you're kind of coming up with no impairment, but you're failing the performance validity test. It's very unusual and a very very tiny percentage, uh, and then every other permutation uh, in between, right? And so we were able to generate some kind of cutoff numbers on the IVA. If you score below this this combination of numbers, um, it may be that you fall into this group of people who aren't putting forth optimal effort. 
Now, in our clinic, we combine this with a variety of other things. Again, we wouldn't lean on just uh, you know one test alone to help us determine that, but we also have uh, you know clinical interview and some other things that we're doing during uh, during the time that we have with someone. A lot of times it's, it can be fairly obvious if a person's not putting forth the optimal effort. They present, they say they have ADHD, which just started yesterday. It's only appearing in one, one setting in school, never affects them anywhere outside of school. That's suspicious, right? And they sort of tell you maybe they have a substance use history. Um, they might, you know, tell you that they're partying on the weekends, who knows? And then you've got to offer them a variety of options for ways to address it other than stimulant medications. Um, and they bat them all down. The only option they want to consider is stimulant meds. Then their scores on the IVA are, you know, beyond, they're actually lower than the mean score of those with ADHD. So it, it looks markedly lower than, than a, a, a genuine impaired population. And they're failing this NVMSVT, a symptom validity test on top of it. And you take that whole picture together and you start to think, you know, I think we're going to recommend that you do a few things before we pass you along to psychiatry, right? If I had to just a comment on that, and then I guess I have a not so hidden agenda in that I've always had a beef with this idea that we are, and, and I'm not implying this by you guys at all, Dan, I'm actually trying to just, you know, kind of flesh this out, but you know, that we're some, we're, we're, we're cops, we're, we're human lie detectors and we're trying to, you know, determine whether someone's being truthful or not. And it's always kind of rubbed me the wrong way as Same. What, yeah. what we're supposed to be doing as we connect with other humans in a, in a therapeutic environment or, or whatever it might be. But so it, and I mean, geez, the MMPI I think has something that's literally called the lie scale or it used to, you know, in one of its mm -hmm. versions. Yeah, the L scale, so right? It's like, man, um, I'm, I'm all for, of course, gaining someone's authentic or, or true performance or, or trying to determine effort levels. It just seems that that would then offer us an in, inroads into, hey, what's up with effort? You know, and, and are, are, are you just wanting some stimulants? Okay, good. We can figure that out. But what, what's going on that you're having difficulty in this environment or in this context, putting forth your true potential or whatever it might be? Mm -hmm. So and anyway, the, within that is, again, now it's not hidden at all my agenda. And maybe it's a different conversation, different time, but seemingly, you know, kind of headstrong approach in our field, neuro, neuropsych in particular of, you know, catching people doing something inauthentic. It just doesn't feel like, like the right approach. And, and we're, we're in the same camp, it sounds like. I don't personally approach it that way. I think our psychiatric colleagues are very interested in getting some of that data because they're very much aware that about 35% of the population that presents for stimulant drugs uh, really don't have attentional impairment and they're wishing to use it to party, restrain their weight. There's a variety of things which to use it and it's a controlled substance. It used to have a black box warning, potentially dangerous, and then the empirical efficacy of using stimulant medications is mixed. Um, so I can appreciate their concerns. I use it as an opportunity to talk with a person, and I like how you started there. If we use this as a microcosm, this time that we have together, and um, we have a sense that a person's not putting forth optimal effort, is that something they characteristically do? Could we derive an accurate depiction of their true skills and abilities if they're not doing that? Have they considered other options? Why not? If, not, if, if there are other options, why wouldn't they consider them? So I, I really like being able to tell people and help them learn a little bit about what stimulant meds can and cannot do. doesn't give you superpowers. Uh, might improve your reaction time on a CPT measure. doesn't make you more careful. doesn't necessarily change your error of commission rate. 
And have you heard of neurofeedback, by the way? And have you heard of neurofeedback? That's right. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you know, I was just going to jump in. He, he already kind of addressed it. I was just going to back it up a little bit that, you know, what we're talking about is, you know, folks who um, come for an assessment for ADHD, and I, he quoted my statistic I was going to throw out there also, is that, yeah, about a third of the people who go in for, for medications for ADHD are, quote, malingering, which means they're faking so that they can get, get the medication. The, the research also shows that not only is it, you know, college age students who are trying to get their meds, but the same uh, statistics apply to even younger kids, kids eight, nine, 10 years old who go in for a psyche, psyche, uh, psychiatric evaluation for medications are also prone to malingering, maybe not in an intentional way, but that there's some influence by parents and peers and schools and kids at even you know, young ages know the the consequences of quote failing the neuropsych evals and what's interesting you know I, I do a lot of uh, especially lately for some reason I'm having a trend of court referrals uh, for disability and the, the questions are you know are these folks malingering their illness so they continue to receive disability and um, it, it's pretty cut and dry you know if you don't put effort testing or symptom validity testing in the neuropsych evals they they throw them in the garbage. So yeah, uh, it's happened. I mean, I've had this discussion with a couple of attorneys this week that they, that was the first question they asked me, do you do symptom testing or symptom validity testing? I said, yes, we're required to being board certified in neuropsychology to do that for that reason, that if it goes in front of a judge, it has to um, have those, uh, those tests in there. But, you know, the, the point is, you know, on on one hand, can they be malingering because they want the secondary gain possibly um, but then there's this other question of what is effort? You know, what are we testing? Even, you know, with neuropsych testing, there are no real tests for effort. I mean, we, as far as if you legitimately have no motivation, you can't get up, can't get started, can't can't get mo- moving, we, there, there are no neuropsych tests for that. All, all of that kind of testing is, is more um, uh anecdotal, just kind of listening to the story. Yeah, I have trouble waking up. I have trouble getting going. And, and to uh, Dr. Long's point that um, mm-hmm. it's in all situations. It's not just when I have a math test, I can't get up in the morning. But if I have to go play tennis, I can't get up in the morning either. So it's, you know, all around an interesting topic. And, uh, you know, you can't, I think he's getting to the point, you can't fake um, commissions on a continuous performance test that uh, we call that pathognomonic of impulsivity. If you have one error, if you have one slip, you you know kill one squirrel in one, while you're driving. You know one one incident of that is a problem in pathognomonic of of an impulsivity issue. So it's hard to fake a continuous performance test. But back to our show here, you know it's hard to fake a, um, a QEEG. You know you're going to show those those frontal areas. Uh, having disinhibition, uh, dysregulation with, with the scan. So, you know, we can do, we do, I mean, skip to uh, six hours of testing, kind of come up with the same result in five minutes. Yeah, there's uh, underperformance of, of the frontal lobe or hyperactivity uh, in different areas. And um, the QEG is is a, a good supplement um, when, when we do our testing, for sure. Interestingly, we do see about 20% of the ADD, ADHD population have unexpected epileptiform discharges in the EEG. And for those individuals, a stimulant medication 
may be the first time they ever actually have a seizure. So uh, stimulant medications aren't always safe. I remember back in the 60s and 70s when amphetamines were discussed as amphetamine psychosis, and now they're handed out for ADD to kids uh, like candy almost. Now, uh, I like to see the EEG because we can match the medication well. If you have frontocentral theta, uh, methylphenidate, Ritalin, or one of its longer acting forms like Concerta is a perfectly good match. It's a dopamine deficit in the striatum, and it's a dopamine reuptake inhibitor. It's 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 a perfect match. If your alpha is very slow, an amphetamine is a norepinephrine agonist. It speeds up your alpha, so there's a good match there. Uh, if your frontal alpha is in excess and it's not slow, it's normal. You'll probably respond better to an antidepressant than a stimulant. If you have beta spindles in the EEG, you're going to react not so well to any of the stimulant medications and you're primarily in need of, of a, a channel blocker like guanfacine in, in 2-NOC-10X. So the, the EEG, QEG can help pick the medication that's a good match for the person. Additionally, when we do a CPT task like an Ivor Tova, if you have the EEG hooked up already, you can actually do something called an event-related potential. The event-related potential can be broken down with component analysis into its parts. You can literally see whether the person visually detects the signals properly, whether they're processing the signal visual properly through the brain, you know, detecting what it is and where it is they're seeing things, uh, that you can see the motor engagement. If that component is not working, you have omission errors. You can see the motor inhibition. Uh, if they'll have commission errors, if that's missing. And you can have a perfect visual CPT performance and have OCD and have the anterior cingulate late latency potential at about 400 milliseconds going off repeatedly telling you made an error when you didn't make any error. It's just common for OCD people to have these error messages, which is why they go rewash their hands or recheck the lock or whatever. So you can literally see the processing of the signal that they've just looked at through the brain, identifying which piece of processing is, is in error. Uh, there are people that just has a, have executive control of, of in motor engagement or motor inhibition. Those are pure ADD. Some have sensory processing problems as well. You see that in the sensory components. And then there's always the OCD, ODD comorbidity where you actually see the cingulate uh, problem, late latency potential. So I, I like to see the EEG, QEG, but I do like to see the visual CPT added in with the EEG recorded so we can actually look at the decomposition of the P300, which is a cognitive event-related potential. So with those testing, we can usually tell you what system in the brain is not working, what likely the symptom is, and what medication or intervention uh, can be used to, to fix it. Um, uh, neurofeedback or neuromodulation interventions, medication interventions, uh, uh, the, the, there's lots of ways to approach changing brain function. And um, if you have a good measurement of what the brain is doing, it allows you to match it really well with the intervention. Mom and dad question here. My kid wants uh, 
to take a pill. Can I send him to Dan's office and do a QEEG and figure out 20 minutes, do they need this pill or not? Because people are lazy. They don't want to work out. They they don't want to train. Okay. But can we just do the QEG or the brain scan to figure out if the kid needs the pill or not? And then follow-up, I learned from uh, Dr. Skip and dealing with psychologists, follow-up question is, Dan, you're, <laughs> Dan, you're at the university and with yeah. the Olympics going on and uh, Simone and Naomi uh, bringing mental health to the forefront. Are you seeing any of the athletes? I know it's in summer season, but... Do you think you'll see a spike in the athletes at the school wanting to come in to get brain scans, you know, the lacrosse players, the football players, to to get a baseline before the season starts? I'll hang up and listen for my answer. I have no idea on that ladder. I have, I have no idea about that, uh, how to answer that ladder question. Uh, you're right. We're um, in a summer uh, period. We're just about to start the fall semester. Uh, so I have no way of knowing or predicting uh, the extent to which those events will have some impact or bearing on what we see here. Um, sorry, I can't answer that one. As far as your first question, it's like, to me, that's like a trick question. Um, it's my choice as a provider to no longer work with uh, st students who wish to be supported with stimulant medication. They have other avenues for that. If they have decided, um, despite my attempt perhaps to heighten their awareness to the research on these things or give them other options, they're hell-bent on going for stimulant medication, then they'll do so. And uh, that's outside my scope of practice. Uh, the people that I work with are people who are uh, either interest, not interested in taking medication or are interested in a day where they're not taking med medication. That's sort of where we want to get to. I find that it becomes uh, very challenging to attempt to out-train their medication. The effects of doing both simultaneously usually results in some very sticky situations. So that's my preference. You know, medications uh, are for the older populations. We also give them to, you know, younger kids, but I'm, I'm working on eval right now where the person is four years old and the, the parents are uh, are interested in, you know, just kind of this black or white answer, is this ADHD or not ADHD? And clearly there's all sorts of developmental issues that they actually would make lots of progress in occupational therapy or lots of progress in language therapy. The parents are kind of, you know, in this black or white, again, medications, not medications. And again, there are other things. I mean, there's certainly neurofeedback, but at a young age, you, know, you can also have neurofeedback, but, but there's all, all these other therapies. And so, you know, what we're talking about, I think, just as a whole is, you know, are, are people willing to kind of think outside the box and do things yeah. where they can own their training, own their treatment, own their symptoms and, and make improvement. Um, I got a puppy. He's now eight months old. But what I mentioned when I first got him, I was YouTube. I've never had, I've had dogs, but never had a puppy. I YouTube, you know, dog training videos, and I soaked all those up. But, but the interesting thing about training dogs is one of the first thing you train your puppy to do at four to eight, well, eight weeks old is to um, give you attention. The first uh, command is look at me. You take the dog by under the chin and you put him in your face or what with a treat and say, look at me. And then you, you train them to look at you. 
And I, I was stunned. I'm like, well, a, a, it works. Hey, you know what? Now he's eight months old. I'll say, look at me. He looks at me and he does all these other things, you know, the treats. But, but the, the point is that we are not training our parents to say, look at me. We're not training our parents to say, hey, you know what? If you do these various physical um, activities, um, you know, go to occupational therapies and other kinds of things, that they will improve their attention. You know, bottom line is there's millions of other things that can be done. And, you know, you know, it's a societal issue in terms of, you know, are you going to own these symptoms? Are you going to take control and make your own progress and develop yourself physiologically? Or are you going to go, like Pete said, the easy way, use the word lazy, but easy way to um, uh, do, do the treatment. So you don't mind me piggybacking on, on what you said there. I, I think if there are parents watching, um, then and if there's anything I could impart to them, it would be this. ADHD uh, as a diagnostic category is a, an incredibly heterogeneous taxonomic category. The important thing to know is that the, the phenotypic expression, the, the symptom presentation of inattention, you know, sort of to talk Dr. Laura's point, may have lots of a variety of different explanations other than it is a purely cognitive ADHD kind of thing. Usually we diagnose ADHD, I don't mean we, but I mean the field, often awards an ADHD diagnosis when there's an unknown etiology for the symptom presentation. If we don't know, then we just say, well, this is this residual category seems to fit the syndrome quite well. We'll just call it ADHD. And ADHD itself probably has many different endophenotypes. Um, Certainly, that appears to be the case. Um, so when people present and they say, I have ADHD, you know, the first thing we're, I think all of us here, of course, do this, but I want, certainly want parents to know that. It, it's, it's important to evaluate all the other myriad considerations that may result in, you know, the appearance of an attention disorder, first and foremost. One of the things I used to do with doctoral trainees was present a slide where it shows essentially the the symptoms that are consistent with ADHD and say, okay, render your diagnosis. And invariably they would say ADHD, cognitive disorder, what have you. And then I'd pull up uh, lead exposure, which I had at one point. I had lead exposure when I used to compete in hand gunning. I was shooting at a poorly ventilated indoor range. And I got to see what it was like to live with a cognitive disorder for the better part of, of a year. In our clinic, we end up digging in and, and finding that probably the vast majority of people who present with ADHD, we often end up awarding them a different diagnosis once we're done with our clinical interview, with all the testing, with everything else. Um, young man who came to us a few years ago at our college counseling center clinic, he says, I have ADHD. He'd been to a number of physicians before. Um, he was convinced that he had ADHD. We did a basic clinical interview and found out, no, he sustained a head injury. He was dropped by a relative when he was a child. He uh, sustained a two and four millimeter lesion in his left dorsofrontal prefrontal or dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Is that going to create the appearance of ADHD? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, but that's not ADHD. Um, so I think I think that's that's super important uh, that that folks realize and that yes, there are a lot of options out there. They may actually be well suited to the individual that don't involve medication. If if I can just summarize what, what you and Laura both saying, um, our Laura and I's mentor, Len Cozio, used to eloquently put it, ADHD ain't one thing. And, and he was, he's a neuroscientist uh, parading as a neuropsychologist, so he was able to then follow that up with some pretty good explanation. But yeah, it's a bunch of things that create what we see. And so I, by default, we, we use the labels at the, 
you know, at, at our ready, which is DSM. Can you tell us, Dan, what, what you're doing with the task-based neurofeedback? I know we got some, you know, providers out there that are doing, you know, air quotes, more traditional neurofeedback with a lot of effectiveness, I'm guessing. But can you talk about the task-based? It seems to be something that I'm hearing a little more about. Yeah, so task-based neurofeedback as a, an intervention is not created by us. It's been been around for some time. We've always been very interested in finding ways to start conducting neurofeedback under cognitive load. I always found it amusing that, well, first of all, some, some practitioners attempt to um, address attention concerns with a one-size-fits-all, well, we'll just focus on FP1, as if that's that's the grand answer for things without even understanding that attention is not a unitary construct and it's actually a multitude of large-scale brain networks and other things going on simultaneously, uh, different forms of attention. Um, usually folks aren't even aware of that. But we wanted to find, find a way to start putting it under cognitive load because we'd see you know, most neurofeedback being conducted while a person could be sitting in default mode network thinking about what they're going to cook later on for dinner. And their brain, it's sort of like akin to me gesticulating, moving my arm like this and saying, I guess I'm kind of doing an exercise and then expecting that to confer some benefit to my barbell squat. Maybe, maybe not, right? And so um, we were always interested in doing it, but for, for years I thought, boy, this doesn't seem like it's going to work or early attempts. Uh, it always felt like we were asking the brain to do two different things simultaneously. Um, it was not a seamless integrated experience. And uh, so I kind of abandoned it. And then one day I was, I was working on a protocol and, you know, it just sort of came to me, well, what if we set up a, a feedback scenario that uh, allows neurofeedback to, to be a bit more seamlessly integrated with cognitive training? We began uh, experimenting with a little bit. People that um, we've been using traditional neurofeedback, a lot of times what we do is we'd start with one. Um, depending on our intervention model, let's suppose they had a real fundamental issue with, I don't know, chronic state of hypoarousal, whatever that may mean for the person, okay? And so maybe we're doing um, you know, some neurofeedback for that, and we start to move the needle, kind of hit a plateau, or we address it, and now we can start working on cognitive things. We don't usually start addressing things like executive function and memory until the more fundamental issues have been addressed. It doesn't make sense to do that. So let's suppose we address the fundamental issues and now it's time to focus a little bit more on the cognitive stuff. So now we're doing neurofeedback protocols for the cognitive stuff. We might hit a plateau a bit. We're not seeing a lot of quantitative change and the client's not reporting a lot of significant progress. We might swap over to cognitive training or vice versa. And that's sort of how we would do it. We kind of hit a wall with one, swap to the other. We've been doing this now for, well, since 2009. Um, we see a lot of people with ADHD. I would venture to guess more than most clinics in the country. And so when we started integrating it, we started finding that the effects we were getting with our cognitive training seemed to happen a little more readily, rapidly. And so now we're collecting data. Of course, we're always interested in not only what are the outcomes and the variety of dependent variables that we were, were studying, but also what are the FAR transfer promises, you know, the FAR transfer effects to what we're doing. Uh, and the like. And so um, that's kind of what we do. We use um, the, the standard protocol that, that we use often will involve S-Loretta neurofeedback, ISF, S-Loretta neurofeedback combined with uh, the, our cognitive training kind of approach, if you will. Uh, the cognitive training approach itself is very much unlike, I think, what people are accustomed to thinking about when they hear cognitive training. I think a lot of times 
people uh, immediately picture the commercially available brain training games like Lumosity and those sorts of things. It's this kind of one size fits all computer driven approach. The research, of course, on using approaches like that is highly mixed. And when you look at the, the reasons for why and you, you see the problems with the literature itself, you, you begin to understand quite quickly why they're not getting the results. A lot of times their operationalization of cognitive training is very narrow. They might select you know, one task that may train a facet of cognition and then use a dependent variable that's multifaceted like IQ. That, and that's very much like if I build my bicep strength, will it increase my squat? Not really, you know, it's kind of apples and oranges. One's much, much larger than the other. They sometimes don't measure baseline. So they might give you like NBAC training as your cognitive training task, but it's possible that um, half the sample is really good at it already. You're training them to the ceiling, right? But the biggest issue is that it's, if you talk with people who've done cognitive training and self-guided cognitive training, they'll hit a wall, they hit a plateau. And at that point, they usually sort of give up. doesn't seem like there's a place to go. Ours is a clinician-guided approach, which means we often use a computer. We often use uh, cognitive training software to facilitate it because it's more convenient. But we're not dependent on it. In fact, we're not dependent on any particular software. It's an informed clinician who knows a lot about the cognitive system that can watch someone engaging in a cognitive task identify where the weak link is, perhaps it's causing that plateau, and then scaffold or accommodate it, the task itself, in order to strengthen the weak link. Uh, it seems to be very effective. We've gotten very consistent results. Um, occasionally, I hear from people who go, oh, yeah, I know something like that in the field of uh, you know, speech, working with aphasic, aphasic patients or something else. Well, we've not seen anything quite published like this. It's in the literature. I'm sure there's a lot of analogs. I'm sure that what we're doing has, I mean, Vygotsky at its core, right? Zone of proximal development kind of stuff comes to mind. Uh, I'm sure it's not unique in a way, but we're just trying to um, make a systematic way of approaching cognitive training that's a little more tailored to the individual's needs. So when someone says, I have poor attention, I don't know what that means. We have to dive into that. Um, I have poor memory. If you're not paying attention, it's hard to remember things. What part of memory? Is it working memory? If it's working memory, what facet of working memory? We're talking updating, binding, or Badley's model of working memory. If it's within Badley's model, is it the articulatory loop? Is it the auditory slave system of working memory? Or is it a central, central executive attentional allocation problem? Right? We try to get really granular and then modify the task to help uh, uh, feature and strengthen that weak link. And, it's been a lot of fun. We've had a lot of success with it. It's been really fun trying to combine it with neurofeedback and sort of see what that brings to bear. MindFit is part of West Virginia University, right? Yeah. Did West Virginia start it or did you start it? Like, how did the college help me with that relationship? Because that, that's pretty cool yeah. that a school is getting that involved. Yeah, I started it in 2009. I came here in 2003 for my clinical internship to finish my PhD and uh, got hired on the next year as a staff psychologist for the Counseling Center and was the uh, coordinator of testing services. So I did therapy and testing services and all that good stuff. 2009 is when, when I started the clinic trying to figure out what options can we give to these folks who are presenting with attention and cognitive issues. And I've learned a lot from so many great people in the neurofeedback community who are so damn smart. I hope to learn from Jay at some point as well, and wealth of knowledge. And so, yes, we've been doing it here since 2009. Um, WV has been great. They took a chance on something that probably seemed 
outlandish and weird, but it's gone really well for our students. We've been listed recently, I think, as like top 10 schools for students with ADHD or something like that. It's, it's really great that they support it, us to do it. Is the school offering courses on neurofeedback? No, uh, they're not. Uh, one time I got asked by the sports psych doctoral program to do a survey course. This was a lot of fun. A survey course over the over the summer for the grad students on cognitive enhancement interventions. So of course, neurofeedback uh, was a big part of it. And there was a, even a practical portion of this, and it was really cool. One day we were doing the practical, and folks are you know uh, trying stuff out, doing things, learning how to put electrodes on each other, doing some basic like really basic protocols so they can just sort of experience it. And I hear this one young woman. Um, over my left, say, my lip, my lip. And I was like, oh, boy. And I turn and said, what's going on with your lip? She said, well, I had this dental procedure, and I had this paresthesia, and it's, it's covered a portion of my face. And right now in this moment, the numbness has just shrunk down to this tiny portion on my lip. The rest I can feel. And I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty miraculous. So whatever skepticism I held about neurofeedback, I think was uh, – addressed pretty adequately by experiences like that and lots of others. It's pretty neat stuff. We're doing this podcast to help get the word out so more people will use it, you know, versus pop a pill. We always say that if the schools would teach more of it or have the classes in there, would it would help. Does anybody got any feedback? Maybe this is a topic for another podcast, but like what are the top schools for neurofeedback? I think it's cool. West Virginia is doing mind fit with you, Dan. But uh, it, it'd be interesting to see, you know, I don't know if we could, re- the Neuro Noodle top 10 schools uh, for learning neurofeedback, I wonder what they would be. Jay would rattle them off off the top of his head right uh, now. I, I, I think it'd be a good thing to end up pulling together with a little bit of research. Obviously, okay, if, okay. I, if I skip one, I'd end up with, with difficulty. <laughs> so um, one, of, one of the interesting it's not really a false positive diagnosis of ADD, ADHD, because the diagnosis is behaviorally based. You know, if, if they're inattentive and hyperactive and impulsive, they got the ADD, ADHD, you know, stamp on the forehead. But, you know, there's a very nice study that says between 25% and 50% of the adolescents that have the ADD, ADHD diagnosis actually have a sleep disturbance. Yep. And it's an extremely common finding. Essentially, if your eyes are open, people assume you're awake, but you can be in stage one drowsiness with the eyes open. And, you know, you ask the person over your, are you awake? And they're going to say, yeah, I'm awake. Uh, but they're not really present in a, in a, a fully conscious way. Uh, if you're measuring them with the bispectrum, which me- can be used to measure depth of anesthesia, they look like they're actually drowsy in stage one or stage two sleep, the measurement off the forehead of the EEG uh, that anesthesiologists use to titrate medication. And it looks like they're already halfway there. They're really not fully conscious. Now, the kinds of sleep problem can vary. You can have primary disorder vigilance, which is like narcolepsy without a cataplexy. Now, they just can't stay awake. You sit down in your desk at school and... eh, bomb, they, they, they just fall asleep. Well, that actually needs to be addressed with a different medication than a stimulant. You don't want to jack up their arousal. You want to flip them to the awake state. You use modafinil, 
um, as, as a medication instead of a classical stimulant. Uh, Dr. Gewurz, uh, uh, Gewurz's program is a good one. But uh, uh, you can have an apnea and not sleep well enough at night and you're drowsy during the day. You can have restless leg syndrome at night or periodic leg movement. You can have a behavioral sleep disorder. I mean, there's, there's lots of sleep disturbances uh, that can end up being problematic for your attention during the day. And the last one on their list is basically, well, there's circadian rhythm as well, but the last one on their list is actually people that have epileptiform activity at night that disturbs their sleep. There are people that have uh, ESES, a, a seizure disturbance during the night in their sleep, and they don't sleep well. You know, uh, they're, they're busy having a, a, a seizure. So uh, if you have one of those sleep disturbances, you're going to look like you have ADD. And it, it, it's, a, it's a difficult differential diagnosis, except with the EEG. If you have eyes closed 10 minutes of EEG and they fall asleep into state two sleep in the first five minutes, you know you've got a sleep disorder, somebody that has to be sent to a sleep lab for a full evaluation. We do catch uh, sleep issues as well, and it, it's astounding how many people end up having it. Again, the estimates of a quarter to half of the ADD population actually have sleep disorders. I'd, I'd say that's true in our clinic, uh, that 100%, we routinely uh, not only inquire about it during clinical interview, but we give uh, a couple of sleep inventories, including the Pittsburgh Sleep Questionnaire. You know, there, there are people for whom there's, they're both impaired, cognitively speaking, and they have a sleep issue. But for many, the, the primary issue is really that of sleep. I'm lucky to have a colleague here, the director of psychiatry here at WVU, Dr. Brian Quigley, he is uh, um, mostly interested in looking at sleep for this population. So the man makes more referrals for sleep studies than he does writing scripts, which is wonderful. It's great to have a colleague like that, right? Yeah. Uh, and you're right, it's an absolutely uh, a huge epidemic, I think, in that population and often presents like ADHD. Yeah. And if you go back, back historically, SMR training, sensory motor rhythm training, actually trains the same exact mechanism, same nuclear body, and everything is a sleep spindle. Uh, it's a stabilizing rhythm during the day. It's a stabilizing rhythm at night. And if you don't have a good sleep spindle, you're going to have sleep onset insomnia and wakefulness because during stage two, you have a vertex sharp wave. That's the brain's response to a stimulus. If you don't have a good sleep spindle, it'll wake you back up. So you're descending awake to stage one, you hit stage two, back to awake. So you don't fall asleep easily. And then once you fall asleep, you bounce back up to stage two on your way up to REM and you pop back awake. So you have wakefulness. So the simple SMR training ends up being really useful for insomnia uh, because insomnia ends up having this difficulty with an insufficient uh, uh, stabilization with sleep spindles. And it is trainable. And uh, with a normal person with kind of a little insomnia, the Europeans showed 10 neurofeedback sessions with SMR was sufficient. But they found with severe clinical cases, 10 sessions was not sufficient. At Alliant University, uh, in uh, Dr. Gewurz's uh, student, uh, Diego uh, Garcia Rodriguez, uh, uh, replicated the treatment group, not the control group, just the treatment group, and did 24 sessions instead of 10, and he used very severe insomniacs that were recruited for it. And uh, he, he found good success with SMR training 
for severe insomnia. The 10 training sessions with just an insufficient dose of uh, training is all. I think sleep is a core issue. Uh, I think one of the uh, uh, side effects of some of the neurofeedback protocols is sleep stabilization. And it's a, <laughs> it's a wonderful side effect, you know, um, yeah. uh, in, enhanced neurocognitive uh, performance on semantic and declarative memory, another side effect of the sensory motor rhythm type training. Oh, you got to suffer with those side effects, you know? So anyway. Slow oscillations and for slow oscillations are being really, really tied obviously to sleep and memory consolidation as well. So I'd love to see yeah. some research done on, you know, training and neurofeedback with ISOs. Yeah. The uh, slow cortical potentials are uh, critical for brain function. They reflect glial activity. Actually, the bispectral index that I mentioned earlier for the depth of consciousness measures consciousness as an interaction between infralow frequency content uh, at 0.38 hertz and gamma at 38 hertz. And to the extent that they're um, interacting, you're conscious. To the extent that they decouple, you're unconscious. It's essentially are the glia interacting with the neural networks. Neural networks, when they form, create gamma. Gamma is an emergent property of having created a network. Uh, So uh, uh, when when you have glial interactions with neural networks, consciousness is the emergent property. (laughs) Uh, Dan, what's the best way to uh, get a hold of you? Is it mindfit.wvu.edu? Yeah, if you're trying to get a hold of me because you're interested in services for yourself, your son, your daughter, if they're coming to West Virginia University, or you'd like to learn more about the creation of a clinic like MindFit at your university, because we'd love to see that proliferate and other universities begin to uh, offer clinics like this, you can use that. You can also contact me if you want anything more privately outside of WVU. My email is dan.long2, the number two at gmail.com. I've been doing uh, some uh, small cohort training uh, on task-based neurofeedback. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure to meet all of you and get the opportunity to chat. All right. All right, Dan. Thanks. You're you're released. You're released. Uh, Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Uh, Dr. Laura, just a quick update on uh, COSO. Yeah, ours COSO, I actually drank it every day for the past week. Um, you have a little shot class, you put some sparkling water and uh, you could discover what the taste was. It wasn't raisin. That was my first thought, but uh, it's plum soda. So it actually does have a kind of a, a pleasant flavor. But as far as effects, I have been on a uh, uh, been on a little weight loss uh, path here. I, I gained my uh, COVID nineteen, as Skip would would say it. I was going to say you're looking uh, pretty sharp. You must be going somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So I'm officially down. Everybody could cheer. Uh, down 25 pounds uh, in the last week, probably uh, one or two pounds. So kind of help help the uh, uh, the show go on. We'll say so. All uh, right. I, highly endorsed. Oh, highly endorsed. Okay. I'm going to continue on. Yeah, there, there's more left in my bottle. It does look like a whiskey bottle, but that's all right. <laughs> I hope I didn't confuse it with the other one. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, good stuff. I'm going to I'm going to keep going. Oh, oh okay. There we go. Good stuff. Ours Coso. Just join uh, the business sponsors on Patreon. Twenty five dollars is all it takes. Coso. Hey, you know what? I, I saw that they're selling that at Walmart. Like it's not just uh, you know a specialty item. You can go to Walmart and uh, any other kind of uh, oh. eBay. 
and Amazon, whatever you can get anywhere. So anyway. Well, if they were a sponsor, maybe we'd sell it on the site. Thumbs up. Okay. That's that's great. We thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcasts. The contact info for everyone is located in the podcast notes uh, below. If you have an idea for a topic or guest, please email Pete at NeuroNoodle.com or leave us a voicemail the link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. And hey, if you really, really, really like us, you can always buy us a coffee on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. Cue the music. <laughs> <laughs>